Hey guys, welcome to episode 81 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we just, before we get started with anything, we would love to thank all of the listeners because really getting this podcast out by word of mouth is the most important and amazing thing you could do for us because gaining new listeners is really priceless. It is. And I appreciate every single one of you that have really made the show what it is today. Like, I mean, we're three years strong and, um, you know, I'm extremely thrilled about it. Like I can't even, I can't even put that into words. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. We're growing every year and we just appreciate it because we know we're growing because you are telling people that you love the show and you're continuing to like the show. So hopefully we're doing something right in that department. Absolutely. (laughs) And if you want extra episodes of A True Crime Couple, you could donate to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And every month you'll get one extra episode if you donate one or two dollars. And you'll get two extra episodes a month if you donate five dollars or above. And we just released an episode last week. It was called The Lord of Chaos. And I don't want to give any information away because even the tiniest detail would be a hint. So we yeah. like keeping the murderer a secret. And that was a really good one. We enjoyed that. It was. And the Patreons have been, we really let them take the reins with the Patreon page and ask the listeners what they want to hear. And then we try to cover those cases strictly on Patreon. So a lot of people have been requesting an in-depth analysis of the Israel Keys saga i guess you could call it and that's what we're going to take on next weekend and that's going to be released to the patreons and we have to give the people what they want yes so we do so we love making them happy and we really have a great community on the patreon page where we talk about each case after the episodes come out so yeah it's great oh we love it yeah so we just want to always thank our patreons and after this show is over we're going to thank our newest patreons by giving them a shout out at the end of the episode okay So, John, if there wasn't a global pandemic going on, where would we be right now? On our honeymoon. On our honeymoon. (laughs) (laughs) We would be on a beach somewhere having a fruity drink, even though it's, you know, the morning. Nobody cares when you're on your honeymoon, right? No, nobody does. I mean, that would be great. But unfortunately, (laughs) we are here. (laughs) Yes. Not on vacation, I mean. I mean, I'm glad we're here recording, but um, it would have been nice to go on our honeymoon. But look, at least we... You know, we're in the process of getting our house. So, you know, that's our little gift to to us. And um, hopefully maybe next year we can go on our honeymoon. (laughs) Yeah, that's the silver lining is that the money that we were going to spend on the honeymoon, we used as, you know, a down payment on a house. Yeah, a portion of it. So, yeah, we know we're we're happy to have that and moving forward. And we're so happy to get out of, you know, this apartment. Oh, my God. We can't wait. Can't wait for that. So, so. What's really funny is that when I was kind of getting the case ready that we were going to cover right before we left for the honeymoon was I didn't want to pick an obvious case where the husband or the wife goes missing or they get murdered on their honeymoon. I felt like that was a little bit obvious, so I didn't want to go in that direction. I wanted to do something a little bit more subtle. So I actually picked a case where there's this really happy couple, they get married, they go on a beautiful honeymoon, and... Then they buy a fixer-upper. So it's actually pretty ironic that we actually, like, we had no clue that we were going to buy a house. But we saw this house and we were like, you know, it has great bones and we could see it as a forever home, you know, after we put in work over time. So it's, like, weird that essentially we taking the same path as this case. Oh, yeah. Well, let's hope all the similarities stop 
here. <laughs> yes, that is that is very true because the couple in our case actually, even though they made the same plans as us, right? Wedding, honeymoon. Well, we didn't really get to go on the honeymoon. Hopefully we will eventually sometime. I feel like when you put it off, it kind of never really happens. So yeah, I'm hoping that's not us, but I think that's most likely probably what's <laughs> we'll going to happen. We'll see. Only time can tell. <laughs> but then they also, they purchased a foreclosure on 20 acres of land. Oh, wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I mean, ours is a quarter of an acre of land. So there's a two in there, right? So yeah. That's- that's okay. It's the only thing that's kind of similar. Um, so they do that in 1987. And they had been in the process of renovating their home when both of their lives were tragically taken from them. But the question is, who murdered this perfectly happy couple? Was it the former owner who was angry that the property had been taken from him? Was it a jealous ex? Or after another murder takes place a month later and within half a mile from their home, was the sleepy Michigan town dealing with a potential serial killer. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Michigan in the late 1980s is a horror movie in and of itself. The state was feeling the repercussions of international automotive competition and the rise of OPEC coupled with skyrocketing gasoline prices. So by 1987, the state may have been celebrating its 150th year of being a state, but its people were suffering deeply. Financial hardship was common and jobs had become scarce due to the closing of automobile plants. But on the eastern shores of Lake Michigan sat the city of Holland. Economically, the town was not as hard hit as the rest of the state, but jobs were still pretty hard to come by. So I think it's best described as a really a blue collar neighborhood of Michigan, but not one that was so hardly hit by the kind of decline of the automotive industry yeah. in the 1970s and 80s that's really sad too when you have like this um this booming industry that kind of supplies the lifeblood of a town for so long and then all of a sudden it's just like pulled from underneath them and then they have nothing it's kind of it's kind of sad when that happens it is sad because when you think about like kind of the pride of america and the country and you know, the leading automotive industry that was really created in Detroit and that the city was kind of like the gem of the state of Michigan and the Midwest kind of in general. And then that gets taken away. Yeah. And then you now have like a mass exodus from Michigan. So and the state obviously is still dealing with the the repercussions and the fallout of that industry failure. Oh, yeah. I mean, because it affects every facet of the community, if you think about it, right? I mean, that affects, you know, restaurants, you know, uh, housing, everything. It's crazy. I have never right, seen anything systems. like that. Yeah, it's crazy. So Holland was kind of spared from that only because they were a city also full of factories, but the factories didn't rely on the automotives. And one of the most famous factories that Holland has is the Heinz factory, where they made sauces like ketchup and mustard. But they were most known for housing the largest pickle factory in the world. 
So pretty much that would be Kay's like gem place because Kay, Kay loves pickles. <laughs> I love pickles and sauces. Like I feel like I only eat food because of what I can dip it in. It's actually it's a problem. Like I always need like extra sauce. I mean, obviously I've felt the repercussions in my waistline for years, but like I need to slow down with the extra sauces. And I'm the opposite because she'll think that I'm weird for not having dipping sauce or having something with like that's just bland. And like, I'm I, like I would dip my dip if I could. Yeah, I'm not like that at all. I'm the opposite. <laughs> so she gets on me about it all the time. But anyway. <laughs> so largest pickle factory in the world. And most of the people within the area are going to work in these factories. But on top of also the Heinz factory, there was a lot of like furniture places, especially office furniture in this area. So residents of Michigan are at are going to begin to flock to towns like Holland seeking employment during the breakdown of the state's economy because these are the factories that are going to remain open. And for some people, it worked and they were able to find jobs. But for others that couldn't find jobs, they unfortunately had to leave the state. And that is where our case takes us today. Holland, Michigan in 1987. A tiny sliver of hope during a dark time of a beautiful state's history. Holland had always been home to Gail Weingarten. She grew up in a home with seven other siblings, and things had always been tight in their home. There were a lot of children to feed and clothe, but the family made it through by showing each other so much love. Growing up, Gail had been close with her older sister Cheryl and the brother that was the closest to her in age, Ryan. Gail was a gorgeous girl. She was tanned from summers out on Lake Michigan and had 80s hair teased to perfection. Her sister Cheryl made it known that there was never a shortage of men trying to vie for the attention of her younger sister. Although Holland is far from a small town, we know that any town is small for teenagers growing up there. So everyone knew Gail and how beautiful and kind she was. But they also knew that she could never be messed with, or else they would have to deal with her brother, Ryan Weingarten, and the rest of her brothers. When she was 18 years old, Gail met a man a few years older than her. His name was Lars. He built homes for a living, and he fell madly in love with Gail. He told her that he wanted to build a home for her where they could get married and raise their children. That sounds like a beautiful country song. It does, actually. <laughs> <laughs> she was obsessed with the idea and agreed to it. I mean, you really can't say no if like a, a guy's like, I love you so much that I want to build you the house of your dreams and then raise children. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, there is an intrigue there. But I mean, it's also <laughs> the time too. I mean, like that wouldn't happen today. Yeah, it's also 1987. So they would pick the worst finishes ever and it just wouldn't be that great. Well, you might think it's the worst finishes, but maybe to some it's not. <laughs> I, that's true. I mean, yes, that is very true. So while building their dream home, Lars quickly revealed his true colors to Gail. He was quick to temper and very controlling. She felt confined to the walls of their house before they had even been sheetrocked. Despite Lars's controlling nature, Gail stuck around with him. And once the house was completed, the couple moved in. So it's really sad that, you know, and this is what happens with abusive men is that at first, obviously, you don't see that side of them. You see more of a charming side. And then slowly their darker nature is revealed when you're already so far into the relationship that you can't back out of it. Yeah. I also think that's something that happens when 
you have a man that's older than the woman i feel like i don't maybe maybe it's just me but i feel like that kind of makes it I mean, it's not okay, but it makes it okay for that person to treat the woman like that. Like, oh, you know, I know what I'm talking about. I'm older or like, I don't know, just poses issues, I guess. I don't know. You're saying like there's different ways that they can like impose control. And yeah, one of them yeah, is because, through because experience. they're older. Right, exactly. They've been there. They've done that and they haven't. So Yeah, and I think it's also his personality that really just really wasn't a match with Gail's because what people said was that over time, Gail had this bright, bubbly personality and she was always positive about things and that Lars kind of put out her flame. Okay. But she stayed with him. So just about one year into their time at the house that they had built with their own hands, Gail was beginning to think that her life was going to settle upon mediocrity. And that is until she met 25-year-old Rick Brink while she was at work. The two both worked at Trendway Corporation, which was an office furniture and remodeling business. Um, She was a receptionist there, and Rick was a contractor. So he was really charismatic and cheerful. And Gail fell instantly in love with him and his personality, and the feeling was totally mutual. When Rick asked Gail out on a date, she told him first that she had to break up with her boyfriend And then she would love to go on a date with him. So she definitely wanted to pump the brakes on any feelings they may have had until she broke things off with Lars. Which is complicated because they have a house together. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, with a guy like this, you don't know how they're going to react. So it's kind of scary. That's very true. So the following weekend, the 19-year-old girl, I mean, she's, she's also only 19 years old, so... It's so young to to make that decision to be with someone for the rest of your life, I feel. Oh, yeah. It's not a de- like we get married later on in life now, I feel like, because we've understood and realized that like getting married at 18, even though sometimes it may work out and that's awesome and so amazing, but it's not something that happens too often anymore. Yeah, I feel like yeah, there's like almost like a science to it too now where we understand that people... Change. Like change, you know, emotionally, you know, mentally. So, like, yeah. you know, that's uh, that's just what happens sometimes. Right. So, Gail, who's 19 years old, is going to make the choice to live a life of happiness and not one of oppression that she was living with Lars. So, she told him that their relationship was not working and that she would be moving out. Now, prior to this conversation, Gail had called a few of her siblings to ask them to help her move out as quickly as possible. And she would temporarily be moving in with her parents while she started dating Rick. So Lars was screaming as Gail was packing up her things. He was not taking the breakup well. He kept asking her how could she be leaving him. This is the house that they had built together that they planned a future in. And he kept getting louder and louder. So Gail chose not to engage with him because in the past this had always been a safer option for her. However, this time, Lars took it as her not listening. And to get her attention, he slammed the dresser drawer shut on her hand. And she heard a crack and screamed out in pain. And this obviously did get her attention. So now the two are actually engaging in a fight with each other. So they're screaming at each other. So as they were fighting with each other, Lars struck Gail in the face. The hit left her with a black eye. The physical fight ended there and Gail began crying on the floor. And that's also when her brother Ryan arrived in the house. He took in the scene and realized that his sister had an injured hand and a black eye. 
and he punched Lars in the face, breaking his nose, and threatened more violence if he ever touched his sister again. Ryan and the other Weingarten siblings helped Gail pack as quickly as possible. Thank God she's out of this situation, they thought to themselves on the way out. Like, she really dodged a bullet getting out of this relationship because once something gets physical, it's that's now the new threshold. Right. And it's only going to get worse and worse from there. You know, a guy like that, that would even scare me more now because... I feel like now he's a little more unhinged because she's leaving him. Um, someone stepped in to stop like him from being physical further with her. And now like that's like like he wants to get her. Like, you know, like I feel like that's what I'm getting in my it's mind. It's an like, ego thing. Like, yeah, it's his ego that has been bruised. And now he feels like he needs to up the ante. And that's scary. That is scary. Yeah. Now, Rick and Gail began dating right away. And they actually moved in together quite quickly, which did make some people speculate that maybe there was a little bit of an overlap between the relationship of Gail and Rick when she was dating Lars. But that's only speculation. There's no evidence that shows that. And you know what? When you know, you know, right? I mean, for all you know, that didn't happen and it's just meant to be. Right. right? It's not like she was in a happy relationship with Lars. It was an abusive relationship. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, at that point, anything's better than what you had. I mean, in a way, right? Right. Well, I don't think Gail would have left her relationship with Lars unless she found someone like Rick who would actually give her the strength and the ability to see that there is better options out there. Because sometimes you don't think that. When you're in these relationships, it's not as easy to leave as some people think it is where when you're shown another life another possibility that's what gives you the strength to get out that's well put so everyone who knew gail and rick said that the two were perfect for each other they were so in love and just very very happy love seemed to come easy for the both of them rick actually told his mother that he felt like he was in heaven when he was with gail and that she was the woman that he was going to marry and gail's family loved rick It was so obvious how nice of a guy he was. The complete polar opposite of Lars, basically. Well, that's a good thing. Yes. (laughs) It was also a whirlwind romance. Rick, being a contractor, made a lot of money for a 25-year-old, especially in an economy that wasn't that great. He also came from reasonable amount of money. So things were kind of good for them. You know, they could kind of do whatever they wanted. And this was a world that Gail had been unaccustomed to. Rick spoiled Gail every chance he got. He bought her gifts and took her on beautiful vacations. He owned a boat that he kept on Lake Michigan, and they would spend most weekends out on the boat, whether it was just lounging around or Rick would teach Gail how to water ski, which she ended up loving. So they had so much fun, and everyone said the couple was just always having a good time laughing with each other. And that's what you want, you know, like that's the things that you uh, strive for is to be happy and then have people around you that, you know, boost you up and just, you know, you're around good company, you know? Right. You're supposed to be with someone that makes you happy. There's no other reason to be in a relationship. True. So within a year of them dating, the couple started to make plans for an intimate wedding. They just wanted friends and close family to be at the ceremony. So they chose a date, April 25th, 1986. Gail wore a sweetheart-style T-length dress and those white pumps that I feel like every woman owned in the 1980s. I think my mom still has her white pumps, actually. (laughs) And Rick chose a blue suit. So you can imagine the wedding pictures. They're amazing. They're great. (laughs) 
So after their emotional ceremony, the couple hosted a reception at a lake house which overlooked Lake Michigan, the site at which they had their most happiest moments. And, you know, this is what Gail had wanted. And in interviews that her sister Cheryl had given, she explained that the family, obviously, I mean, it's a hard economic time for the state of Michigan, period. So you can only imagine what it was like for a family of nine, because there's seven siblings, to grow up there. So they lived in poverty and it was always a struggle for them. And Gail, the second she could get a job, had a job. She worked as a waitress and then she went on to become a secretary. But she was always working because she promised and she had kind of said this to her sister, I want to get myself out of this situation. I never want to worry about where my next meal is going to come from, or I don't want to ever live paycheck to paycheck, which is a reality for most Americans. But um, sometimes when you grow up in extreme poverty, that becomes your like fixated goal to not repeat the cycle of it. So that is kind of the situation. That's where Gail was at. And it was almost like she was living her dream, essentially. Yeah. And you know, that's, um, that's a good I guess it's good to be passionate and it's good to have drive and and goals and you know what she was able to achieve those and work hard and you know and have a good life so hey look more power to you right yeah I think so I think that when you're in a relationship with someone that's positive it allows you to really achieve those goals because you're like emotions and your energy isn't being wasted on the relationship, but it's being put into positive forces like your work. So and it wasn't just like Rick did all the work and he made all the money. Gail was also trying to like rise in the ranks of the furniture company as well. So they were both working really hard and they both had, you know, they had goals for their future. And they had jobs, which was hard to come by. Yes. So that makes things a lot easier. Half the battle. (laughs) That is. So the couple went on a cruise for their honeymoon, and when they returned, they, like, really love boats. (laughs) (laughs) When they returned, Rick's father surprised them with a house. Wow. That's a really nice wedding gift. That is. (laughs) He had bought them a foreclosure on the outskirts of town. The house was in rough condition, he told them, but that just gave them the opportunity to make it their own. The potential was endless as their house was sitting on 20 acres of land. That is a crazy amount of land. So the couple was happy about completing a renovation together. After all, Rick was a contractor and technically Gail had built a house already. Yeah, so they have some experience here. (laughs) I think they can manage. So now the couple, as many did during this time, they videotaped everything which is kind of cool because you really got to see the dynamic and everything that people said about the couple was clearly true they really just laughed the whole time they were always joking with each other and you could tell they were in love yeah you you really could totally i just have to say i have to say this because it's so true so my aunt fran she loved to videotape everything as well and i i want to say if it wasn't for her i would have Probably no, the whole family would have no uh, recollection or anything to look back at if she didn't videotape everything. So everybody always used to make like, not fun of her, but like they used to just, they used to just crack jokes. But yet, without her, we would have no video. (laughs) No, it is good when, it's always annoying when it's taking place, like someone's videotaping you, but then you look back and you have all those memories. Yeah, exactly. So So it's cool. 
it is something nice to have. So the couple's going to videotape their first um, walkthrough of the property, and they also videotape much of the remodel. So um, there is access to that video. So within the first walkthrough uh, video, it's uh, it's definitely an experience because um, the house was in total disrepair. So let's just give you some background information. Before the Brinks bought the home, it was owned by a man who went by the pseudonym of Shotgun Sid. He was in a motorcycle club and he was formerly unemployed. However, he got his money running drugs between West Michigan and Detroit, which at this time was going through a bit of a crack epidemic, which I'm sure he contributed to. Well, I don't know where Shotgun Sid was going wrong, but he was failing to make money running drugs during a drug epidemic. So something was happening. But he failed to pay the mortgage and his home was foreclosed on. So the bank took it over. And that was who um, Rick's father bought it from, the bank. And it was really not in a good state when the bank kind of got a hold of it. So when Rick and Gail first walked through the property, which was located on Ransom Street, they realized pretty quickly that Sid was not necessarily a homemaker and that he was not happy about the foreclosure. Because not only had the house been left in disrepair, but all the appliances, and I mean everything, like every lighting fixture, everything in the kitchen, had literally been ripped from the wall causing a lot of damage. So there were exposed wire all over the place. There was burn marks from where he was ripping electronics out and lighting fixtures out, but like the drywall had been burned because of the live wires that were exposed. So probably after he couldn't pay and before they vacated him out of the property, he probably was just like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to destroy everything. That's probably what he did. Oh, no, 100%. That's what he did. At one point, Rick went to touch the hanging cabinets that were in the kitchen. And when he even just put his hands on them, they literally fell from the ceiling. Like, it looked like he had been hitting them with a sledgehammer. Probably was. Like, he was furious about (laughs) this foreclosure. But instead of being upset about the destruction, they were laughing throughout the whole video. Like, oh, my God, we're going to have to fix this. But it was good hearted. Yeah. And the couple really wanted to just begin reconstruction. They were excited about it. So their families both said that during the renovations, which the couple also filmed, like I said, they just had a really great time with it. And by the fall of 1987, they had completed all of the renovations on the standing house. And they told close friends and family that the next project they were going to work on would be to put an addition on the house, which would be the nursery. But they said, we have a year or two before that, because the couple was young. At this point, Gail is only 22 years old and Rick is 28. So they have time. There we go. So we're going to take a break right now and talk to you about the first sponsor of the show, Best Fiends. I don't know about you guys, but I'm really missing spending time with friends and family. But one way I've made up for this is by starting a little socially distant competition. Right now, my mother and sister and I are having a friendly competition of who can go furthest in the game. We do say it isn't fair, though, because my mom's retired, so she gets to spend a little bit more time playing than we do, but we'll let her get away with it. 
I promised them that they would love the game. I mean, there's already 100 million downloads, so why would they want to miss out on all the fun? And I was right. They love it. And I promise that you will love Best Fiends too. It is a unique and exciting puzzle game that is updated monthly with extra events and levels which keep the game new and exciting for its users. Best Fiends also does not require the internet to play, so you don't need to worry about Wi-Fi access or using cell data, so you can play wherever and whenever you want, which trust me, you'll want to do. Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips. And remember, you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. Now, even though everything seemed like it was working out for Gail and Rick Brink, their fairy tale would come to a screeching halt on Monday, November 23rd, 1987, when Rick and Gail Brink failed to show up at work. Gail's emergency contact was still listed as her mother and father, as was Rick's. So as soon as the wine gardens were told that their youngest daughter was a no-show, which she had never done before, they are going to call Rick's family, who had also been notified that he didn't show up at work, and they're going to say, would it be possible if, if you guys could go out there because the Brinks are going to live a little bit closer to Gail and Rick than the wine gardens did. So they are going to drive out to the house on Ransom Road. And in the meantime, the wine gardens are going to call all of Gail's siblings just to kind of ask, have you seen her? Have you heard from her? But they hadn't. So now they were all really worried and everyone was waiting for the report that the the Brinks were going to give. Rick's parents, Isla and Bud Brink, set out for their son and daughter-in-law's house, which was technically located in Park Township. They prayed that there was a reasonable explanation for them not being at work and no one hearing from them. Once they arrived at the house, they were able to get in as Bud had a key for the property because after all, it was him that purchased the home for the newlyweds. Rick's mother called out to them. Kids, are you home? Are you up? But there was no response to her question. The couple looked around the house, but nothing seemed amiss. It looked the way it always did, until they reached the bedroom. They noticed that it was a mess. There were clothes strewn all over the place, but especially all over the floor. At first, they thought the bed just remained unmade, until specks of blood caught their attention. Bud lifted the pillow that laid on the bed, and he and his wife were confronted with a grotesque scene. It was Gail, their son's wife of only 18 months. She had clearly been shot, and when Isla checked for a pulse, she realized that the beautiful young woman was dead. They left the house, and Bud told his hysterical wife to wait in the car, and she did. Bud called the sheriff's department and went outside, and that's when he noticed his son's Chevy Blazer that sat in the driveway. The passenger side window was shattered. He chose to look inside, and that's when he found his son slumped over into the passenger seat. He, too, had clearly been shot. Frantic, Bud let his wife know the news, but did not allow her to see the sight. Yeah, it's probably a good call. I mean, it's hard to it's hard when uh, you have to see anybody, you know, 
dead, especially brutally like that. But it, I guess it's another thing when it's your son and your daughter-in-law. That yeah. just is a whole other animal in itself. It's just that's incredibly difficult. Yeah, I think he, he made, obviously, he made the best call because of her reaction from just seeing Gail. Like, you can only imagine oh, how yeah. a mother would react to seeing her son like that. So a deputy from the sheriff's department reached the house quite quickly. He observed the scene in the Chevy Blazer and called in for backup for what could be a homicide or suicide. Like They didn't know if maybe this was a murder-suicide that took place or a double homicide. So he entered the property and observed the same scene that the Brinks did, but obviously with a trained eye. There did not appear to be any signs of a break-in. The doors and windows were all intact, and there was no sign of a struggle in the house. Again, the only mess that was observed were the clothes in the bedroom, but it was more like someone had been trying on clothes and then discarding them. Okay. So to the deputy, just as it did for Rick's parents, it first looked as if the bed was just unmade, but then he saw the blood. He also lifted the pillow that lay on the bed and... The days before DNA, right? Everyone's touching everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, he lifted the pillow that lay on the bed and he realized that it had been covering a young woman who had clearly been shot more than once at point blank range in the head. The sight was nauseating. Not wanting to contaminate the crime scene any further and needing to leave the room, the deputy went outside and radioed in that he would need further backup and even more crime scene units as... They were dealing with a double homicide on Ransom Road. When detectives and crime scene investigators arrived, they determined that Gail Brink had been shot at very close range, three times in the head with a twenty-two caliber shotgun. Due to the blood spatter pattern, she must have been laying in bed when the shots came. Whether she was sleeping or not remained a mystery. Robbery clearly was not the motive at all because there was money all over the house it was on the kitchen countertops it was in the bedroom there was even some loose change on the table in the living room there were there was jewelry and watches in plain sight and also gail's purse she had her wallet and her id out on the kind of kitchen countertops right so the motive wasn't to take anything the motive was to kill them right like yeah and obviously, I mean, we've covered enough cases to know that there was some kind of remorse that took place because Gail's body was covered by blankets and the pillow was over her face. So, I mean, we'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about other motives that took place. But it seemed like there was some type of remorse or regret that took place. Okay. The next location on the property that the detectives went to, as it was the scene of Rick's death, was the Chevy Blazer in the driveway. It appeared that he had been sitting in the driver's seat when the shots rang out. At first, the detectives were thinking that this might be a murder-suicide because of the location of the bodies. Like maybe he had shot his wife while, he was sleep- while she was sleeping, and then he went out to the car and committed suicide. So at first, that was their thought process, but they quickly realized, no, they were dealing with a double homicide because Rick had been shot twice in the side of the head. So usually when you look at suicides, there's not two shots. Right. Which makes sense. Also, when they moved Rick's body to look for the the weapon, it wasn't present in the vehicle. So there's never a suicide where 
somebody shoots themselves twice and then gets rid of the gun before they die. Right. I mean, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was, and the scene at the blazer was just as unsettling and grotesque as the scene in the bedroom. Rick Brink had been shot while sitting at the steering wheel as determined by the trajectory of the bullets. The window on the driver's side was half open, which is where the shots must have come from. And the bullets, after passing through Rick's head, left the vehicle and went out of the passenger window, which was shattered. So the force of the shots caused Rick's body to slump to the right, and the upper half of his body was lying across the passenger seat, while the lower half of his body had slumped down and was underneath the steering wheel. Okay. So besides the story that the bullet trajectory and the blood spatter told police, there was a really serious lack of physical evidence found at the crime scene to explain just what happened. Of course, because it's the late 1980s, we can rule out the possibility of DNA, as this isn't something that had been fully developed yet. Viable evidence that would have helped them during this time period would have been like items left by the killer, a murder weapon, blood found at the scene that didn't match the victim's footprints, fingerprints. Tire tracks. Well, yeah, and there was literally none of that. They couldn't even find the shell casings. And the only bullet that bullets that were found were the ones that were embedded in the victim's bodies like the one bullet that passed through rick and went through the driver's side they could never find the bullet or the shell casing so the murderer took the shell casings and the two bullets that one bullet went through gail's body that bullet was taken uh, retrieved from the bed and I guess wherever the other bullet ended up was taken. Did you say it was a twenty-two caliber? Yeah. Rifle? Shotgun, yeah. Huh. What? No, uh, it, it's kind of funny because if we're talking about like a twenty-two caliber like round, uh, like they're super tiny, they're super easy to obtain. You can go anywhere, any hunting shop and get them. It's so inconspicuous. Like it's a caliber that everyone can use. It's one of the most produced rounds. Right. So it's like, there, it's... If it if you get shot in the head with a twenty two, even though it's the smallest caliber, it's literally the most deadly because when it enters your brain or your head, it just bounces like a rubber ball. Okay. Whereas if you got shot in the head, unfortunately, if you did, if you got shot with like a nine millimeter or something like that, you could maybe somehow like your chances of survival. It's weird. It's like is higher with a higher caliber, like a nine millimeter compared to a twenty two. Your brain's just mushing it with a twenty two if you were to get shot in the head, and apparently they knew that by shooting them in the head. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they, ha- they, they have experience. experience with shooting people in the head with a twenty two. Whereas, this isn't just somebody for hire that is, like, shoddy as hell that doesn't know and just starts shooting people through a window. Like, they know, hey, shoot this guy in the head with a twenty two, they're done. Right. You know what I mean? Like, there's been people that walk away getting shot, like, five times and then they're alive. Right. So, this is somebody that definitely knows about weapons. And but it's also someone who, like you said, could be just a hunter. It could be someone that that's their recreational weapon. Yeah, it could that be. They had. It's definitely not somebody that doesn't know. Like it's like a crime of passion or in a moment they know they have to know what's going on. Okay, that's my little. That's your theory. The little theory. So this was hard for the investigators because they had no physical evidence to go on here. 
So the detectives working the case had two things to do to begin the investigation. First, they had to trace the last known steps of the victim, and then they had to find a suspect. The medical examiner told investigators that Gail and Rick Brink had been murdered sometime Saturday night. So after they looked at the calendar that the couple kept and spoke to their families, they learned that Rick and Gail had both been at work on Friday and then they spent Friday night at home. Then they had a wedding to go to on Saturday. So they spent the morning lounging around and then preparing for the afternoon wedding of a high school friend of Rick's. So the couple attended the ceremony and reception, which was on November 21st, which is what, John? November 21st. November 21st is our anniversary. Okay. Our, our being together dating anniversary. I remember. Don't worry. I know. It took you a while, though. You know what it is? Because I've been training my brain to know, you know, October 5th, October 5th, October 5th. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. It's a lot of dates to remember for you. You know, it's hard for me. You know, I'm bad. (laughs) I'm bad with anything with numbers. So, yeah, this is like hard. But I try. (laughs) I know it's a date. I don't know. Just let's just roll with it. But I know what you're doing. So that was the reception. That was the Saturday. And remember, the medical examiner said that they were murdered on Saturday night. So they had because they were at the ceremony and the reception It had to have been some time after this wedding that they attended. So to determine what time the couple left the wedding, all of the guests were questioned. They said that Rick and Gail were having a great time. Rick only had a few drinks early in the reception because he was the one who was going to be driving home. And Gail was the one having a really good time because she was not the one driving home. So, um... Gail was a little drunk at the wedding, which is the way to do it. Yeah, you know? which is the way, which, you know, a little, little uh, behind the scenes, pull back the curtain a little bit. I'm always, always our designated driver and Kay is always the one that has a good time. It's a match made in heaven, I <laughs> yeah, feel. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't drink a lot. No. Like you don't overindulge. I am the overindulger. Yes. So that's why I, I've just, it's just, a, it's just customary for me to just be the designated driver. Yes, there is a few occasions when we're with your friends, though, that I've let you drink and then I... Oh, yeah, yeah. I've done it a few times. Well, the only thing is you just can't you just can't bring me to a place that serves like 50 or 60 different types of margaritas, though. Because John's the margarita deadly. king. That's he, deadly, he yeah. I, <laughs> I will think a car is like super far away. And meanwhile, it's about 25 feet from me. So it's just not a good thing. Yeah, well, that was when we parked and John had three margaritas. We're walking back to our car and he's like, why did we park so far away? And I'm like, John, we are literally in the first row of cars. So you need to calm down. So that kind of gives you a little backstory (laughs) as to why I don't want to go to any place that serves margaritas. (laughs) So the accounts of all of the people who were at the wedding are going to vary slightly. But the estimated time that the couple left was between 10.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. So this led detectives to conclude that the couple had been killed once they returned home from the wedding and because the wedding was about half an hour away from their house that they must have been killed sometime after 11 or 11 30 p.m but it was still a mystery as to how the whole scene went down however i mean don't forget gail's sleeping in bed and rick's out at his car when he's killed so what could have happened to separate them like that and get murdered in the way they did. So that was a pretty big mystery because 
we don't know what took place. The next thing the detectives wanted to do was to find a suspect. Because they had none, they first wanted to rule out everyone in Rick and Gail's inner circle. And it would also be great to interview them so they could learn a little bit more about who the couple was and if anyone had any ill will towards them. First, they spoke to both Gail and Rick's parents. They were all distraught. The four of them said that Gail and Rick were the happiest people they knew. They were excited to start their lives together, and there was never any indication that anything was wrong at all. But when detectives asked if there was anyone that might have bad intentions for the couple, it was Bud Brink who spoke up. He mentioned Shotgun Sid, the former owner of the property on Ransom Road. He said the man was terribly upset that he had to leave the property, and he was a known drug dealer in a motorcycle club, so he was most likely probably really angry with the kids for taking the house over. And this being the first lead that they had, the detectives assured the parents that they would most definitely check into it. I mean, this is a dangerous guy. He has a pretty long rap sheet, so... It makes sense yeah. he would be a suspect. I mean, I mean, if he wasn't a suspect, I would be questioning everything, right? I mean, it, it, you have to at least look into it. Exactly. So all of Gail's siblings told detectives that she was the closest with Cheryl and her brother Ryan. So it was those two that the investigators most wanted to speak to. Cheryl more or less said the same thing that her parents did and also was able to give an alibi to police. Which she thought was weird, but we know by now. That's just protocol, honey. So don't take any offense. Yeah. (laughs) Next, they spoke to Ryan. He also provided them with an alibi that was confirmed by his girlfriend. Ryan did tell the detectives something that they had not been aware of. Gail had a very bitter ex-boyfriend. He told them that he thought this could have been Lars. He knew that he had been furious because Gail had met Rick when she was still dating him, and he had felt like there was a little bit of an overlap in the dating of the two men. So despite the fact that Lars had built a house for her, um, Gail was cheating on him, he thought, and that's what kind of he was going around town saying. He also mentioned that when his sister had tried to leave, Lars had gotten physical with her. And he believed that it had happened before, but Gail just didn't want to tell them. So now the detectives, they have two viable suspects here. Right. I mean, they have a lot to go on. So So by the fourth day of the investigation, the detectives already had two people that they wanted to bring in for questioning regarding the murder. However, they were not going to have to track down the former owner of the house because he had come to them. Shotgun Sid himself sat in front of the detectives. He had requested a a meeting with them because he said he had news for them. So now they had a pretty good understanding of who he was because as soon as they had heard the story of his bitter departure, they had pulled up his criminal record and it was pretty extensive. They were well aware that the man was a career criminal. Well, interestingly enough, he had come to them because he wanted to help with the investigation. He did admit that he had made a name for himself in his motorcycle club by being ruthless and running large amounts of narcotics to Detroit. Because of this, he found himself in some sticky situations in the past. 
For example, there was a time when men had come to his house with guns, ready to kill him, because there was a discrepancy about how much, you know, money a drug run had cost and what they got from it. Like the percentage wasn't split equally. Okay. So he admitted that in the time period after the foreclosure took place, there was a few times that he had issues with money and maybe people had gotten upset about it. So basically he's admitting here that he was continuing to dabble in things that might have been illegal and he was shorting people money because he was short money himself. His house had just gotten foreclosed on. So he is saying that maybe something like that had happened in the past happened again. These people were pissed that they were shorted their money. So they went to his house on Ransom Road where they thought he lived. And maybe they, thinking that the people that lived there were him or people he was associated with, murdered Gail and Rick to get back at him, right? Because when you think about it, they were kind of shot execution style. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, it's one of those things where is it just super like convenient that that's what he's saying or is it the truth? Because you got to think, though, too, for him to come out and say, hey, listen, guys, um, I'm part of a motorcycle club. I uh, I deal drugs and I kind of got myself, uh, you know, mixed up, you know, in a bad situation. Like you're you're confessing to all these things that you're doing. Well, I'll tell you why. Because the detectives thanked him for his honesty, obviously, but they had to acknowledge the fact that Shotgun Sid was offering to testify if anything came out of his theory because he wanted to help himself. He had some charges pending. So he was saying, if you lessen the charges that I have pending, then I'll testify to take down the motorcycle club or anyone who is responsible like I'll, for the murder. Right. So he wanted to kind of be an informant. Exactly. But it doesn't mean he's lying. So you know how like sometimes they call informants rats? Yeah. Right? Well, so if this guy's saying that let's say there's people that are out for him and that have made previous trips to the house, maybe they thought he was still there and they knew that he might be try to flip on them and maybe by like executing those two people the way they did was like a message. A message like, you know, you're a rat, you you're gonna try to flip. So that like that gun is used to kill vermin sometimes. And that's the connection I'm trying to make. Like, like that's the message. Like, if you flip, you're next. Maybe they thought that they were friends with him. Right. But he wasn't there. Or even family members. Or family members or something. So, Well, this totally, like, this angle really does make sense here. Things like, you know, crazier things have happened, yeah, right? Ab- absolutely. But before investigators wanted to go full into Shotgun Sid's theory, they did want to speak with Lars. Right. They wanted to, you know, rule out as many people as you can first before you go full into an investigation, because investigating a motorcycle club is going to take a lot of groundwork. Yeah. Okay. so now we're going to take a break to hear from our second sponsor of the show, Thrive Market. So a few weeks ago, we became Thrive Market members and we love it. If you don't know what Thrive Market is, it's a company that delivers organic and sustainable groceries right to our door. We've gotten their organic pastas, sauces, seasonings, and of course, our favorite, their organic wine. But I have to say that I will now only get my organic meat and seafood from Thrive Market. It is so convenient and healthy to just make one of their customizable meat and seafood boxes. 
I promise if you do it once, you'll love it as much as we do. So let us tell you some other reasons why we love Thrive Market. As a proud Thrive Market member, I get the products I love and my paid membership provides a free one for someone in need, like a low-income family, teacher, veteran, or first responder. Thrive Market tailors to over 70 different diets and values, like paleo, keto, and even plant-based. And it delivers the highest quality of organic and sustainable essentials from groceries, healthy snacks, meats and seafood, clean wines, non-toxic cleaning, and bath and body. Everything you could want. So as a member, I'm saving 25 to 50% off traditional resale prices. And their carbon neutral shipping is free on orders over $49. The savings I get on my favorite clean organic products are amazing, but I also feel good about helping to support communities in need. In addition to membership matching, Thrive Market has raised over $750,000 to date through their COVID-19 relief fund. We are proud Thrive Market members, and you will be too. Try it risk-free. Go to thrivemarket.com tcc. Join today and you'll get up to $20 in shopping credit towards your first order. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash T-C-C to start your risk-free membership and get up to $20 towards your first order. Again, that's thrivemarket.com slash T-C-C. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. So detectives asked Lars to come in and answer some questions that they had, and he agreed. He readily gave a blood sample and took a lie detector test. He passed it, and his alibi was verified. So once Lars was ruled out, the department put all of their resources into trying to infiltrate the motorcycle club to figure out if they or any of their associates were responsible for the murder. For a week, they worked informants and pulled in members for interrogations, and it had all been for nothing. It was a dead end. There was no involvement from the motorcycle club because they had kind of disassociated themselves from Sid. But one thing that did come out of looking into them was the detectives figured out that the murder of Gail and Rick, it wasn't an accident. Like, it wasn't a case of mistaken identity. They had clearly been targeted. Like, they were the intended victims. Okay. So after things didn't work out with the two suspects, detectives started back at square one, and they began to re-canvas the area and speak with both the Weingarten and Brink family again. At this point, a month had gone by, and that brings us to Christmas Eve of 1987, where something horrible happened to Holland, Michigan again. There was another murder. Not even half a mile away from the Brinks' house on Ransom Road, a woman, who had been in the same grade as Rick Brink in high school, had been murdered. Her name was Deborah Wilson. Deborah was 29 years old, and she was a housewife who had stayed home while her husband went out with his friends on the night of December 23rd. When he returned to the house, definitely a little inebriated, he could not find his wife. He noticed that the sliding glass door was open which, of course, was unusual because it was the dead of winter in Michigan, so he knew something was wrong. In a panic, he called his parents and told them that he had no idea where Deb was. They rushed over, and they found the scene as unusual as he did. Using flashlights, they searched the large property, calling out her name. 
and it was his father that ended up finding her in a field behind their house. She had suffered multiple stab wounds, and her throat had been slit. The Brinks and the Wilsons were friendly with each other, as most couples are that are around the same age in a small town. This was unsettling to the community because they believed that the coincidence of the two murder scenes was uncanny. I mean, they were less than half a mile away from each other. Yeah, that's true. But I, I always find that, would, I mean, it's kind of a different MO. I mean, they're using a knife this time. I mean, is there anything to that maybe? Well, yeah, I definitely think that the whole way that the crime took place, like you said, the MO, completely different, especially like the use of different murder weapons. You usually do not see that, especially like with the serial killer, like switching over to a whole different kill method. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. And it takes way more effort to do this murder than it did you know the 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 gun so i don't know that's weird it is it's interesting but i mean you can't deny the fact that it's totally unusual for uh a town that has a very low murder rate to have in basically one month literally one month two murders within half half a mile i mean that is weird yeah definitely so the detectives felt the same way just As in the Brink case, there was no reason why Deborah was murdered, and no suspects could be found. They began to investigate the possibility that the two crimes were connected. So when a pattern is found, it is standard to look back at past crimes and see if something similar had taken place in the past. And the detectives did find something that was very similar to that case. Although it had taken place 10 years prior to the Brink and Wilson murders, detectives believed that there were a lot of similarities between those cases and the murder of Deborah Polinsky. Deborah Polinsky had been 20 years old at the time of her murder. She was living in the upstairs apartment of a two-apartment house. She was living in the upstairs apartment of a two-family house and had been found in its only bedroom. A co-worker had gone to check on her after she failed to show up for work at a chemical plant. The woman found Deborah's body in her bed. She had been stabbed multiple times, and her German shepherd was standing guard over her body. That's so sad. That is sad. You know, I'm starting to get this picture. Does he, do you think this, whoever's doing this, do you think they're going after women specifically, and then just the one dude just happened to be... Like they, they encountered Rick on his way out? Correct. Maybe. Interesting. Because it seems like, I mean, women are being killed. Right. And then Rick is the anomaly. Right. When the male figure or the husband or boyfriend are either leaving or coming in. Right. Right. Like maybe they thought Rick would be gone for longer. Correct. Interesting. It is interesting. You know, we, for all we know, the couple, the the married couple, she could have, let's say, because she was intoxicated. She, maybe she went in, like he dropped her off, let's just say. And you never know. He could have left to maybe go grab her medicine or something. Or go out to a bar with his friends. Or go out to the bar and then came back. Yeah, that's, oh my God. And she just went in to go to sleep. Okay, so things are starting to like, yeah, this is a little weird here. Right, and that's what I think investigators were thinking too. Yeah. So Deborah Polinsky lived within a mile of both the Brink and Wilson homes. So now when we talk about these three crimes, there's a mile radius. Yeah. So there had been a few parties in the woods behind Deborah Polinsky's house the weekend she was murdered. Um, She had also been found on the Monday after her murders because she was also murdered on a Saturday, like the Brinks were. So the detectives questioned the party goers, but and this is back in 1977, but no leads were ever found. And by 1987, the Polinsky case was a cold one. Yeah. 
And unfortunately, that was the fate for both the Brink and Wilson cases. As no suspects were found, there was no leads to follow, and no true connection could be made between the three cases. Days turned to weeks, weeks to months, and ultimately months into years. But although there was a passage of time, there was never a lapse in attention being drawn to the cold case of Gail and Rick Brink. Gail's sister Cheryl aggressively advocated for the reopening of her sister and brother-in-law's case. And she needed to, because at this point, 20 years had passed. That's a long time. And then, you know, that, like, that must be difficult, I mean, for, for both families, because... Here they, you know, here they are living, you know, continuing their life. And for 20 years, you have no idea what happened to your sister and your brother-in-law. It's sad. And that's rough. I mean. It's also hard to now investigate a 20-year-old case. Exactly. Because there's no, there wasn't enough evidence back then. It's hard to get it now after 20 years. It's not like there was blood collected from a third party. They had none of that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very difficult. Well, Cheryl is actually going to organize her family and friends and they are going to get together and donate money that could be used to help reopen the case. Cold cases usually don't get reopened due to a lack of funding and resources that a department may have. Well, here was Cheryl in 2007, 20 years after the murder, with enough raised funds to reopen the case. I mean, that's dedication. I mean, yeah. right? Yes. And that is just what the Ottawa Sheriff's Department did. And it was clear that they, just as much as the family, really wanted to see the cold case solved, as well as the two others, the Polinsky and the Wilson case, which I have to say, a lot of departments aren't, wouldn't be open to that. So I think it was really like a good match between the Ottawa Sheriff's Department and Cheryl Weingarten really kind of advocate. Now she's Murphy is her last name, but she's really advocating, but they're open to her advocating. They're not annoyed with her. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I find that very rare, though, too. It is. Because a lot of these police departments have like dozens and dozens and dozens of cold cases. Yes. Maybe more than that. I think the Brinks and the Weingartens got lucky when it came to the department they encountered. it's It's unfortunate that that's even how we have to word it. But yeah, I mean, I think they were. Exactly. Both having good intentions. Yeah. So the detectives that were chosen to take on the case were not from the town of Holland, Michigan, which I think in the long run was to their benefit because they're now coming into this investigation without any bias, which always helps. So the first thing that the detectives wanted to do was rule out or establish whether or not this case was connected to the Wilson or Polinsky cases. Were they dealing with a serial killer? I mean, in reality, that would be helpful as sad and kind of scary as it is because just one piece of evidence at one of those crime scenes could help solve them all. However, just as the detectives had 20 years prior, they also realized that there were no connections between the three cases. It was all just a crazy coincidence. As a side note, though, I will say that the Wilson case and the Polinsky case were reopened and investigated after um, the Brinks case was going to be reopened and through DNA testing of evidence at the Polinsky scene. Now, this is fast forwarding to 2017. It was determined that there had been a female at the scene other than the co-worker that found the body. So they're thinking that the murderer of Deborah Polinsky had been a female. Okay. But that case is still open today. 
as is the Wilson case, which is sad. Those two have not been solved. I know there's active Facebook pages um, that the detectives are running for those investigations. So if you're interested in those, they're open. So after the detectives who were working the Brinks cold case determined that there was no connection with the other cases, they really thought that their next move was to investigate the ex-boyfriend or girlfriend angle. Maybe there had been a love triangle, as that avenue had never been gone down before. Um, But they didn't go that angle because as they were reading the file, something kind of jumped out at them. When they were reviewing the alibis of all of the people who were interviewed about the case, they found a discrepancy in the alibi of Ryan Weingarten, Gail's brother, and his girlfriend. Ryan had told the original detectives that he had been at a friend's house with his girlfriend on Saturday night. But when his girlfriend Pam had taken a lie detector test later on in the investigation, she had said no, they were not at a friend's house that night. And she had passed the lie detector test. Okay. So he was lying about his alibi. So this was curious to them. So in February of 2012, the detectives went to pay a visit to Ryan and Pam, who had gotten married in 1989 and were still together. The couple had grown children at that point, and Pam had one child from another ma- another marriage that was short-lived prior to her relationship with Ryan. And the couple lived in a trailer at the edge of town. They only got to speak to Ryan as Pam was at work when they visited. He said that he really couldn't remember too much about where he had been 25 years ago. And that all he remembered was that he did not lie when he talked to police. So anything he must have said back then was the truth, which they know it was not. So they thanked Ryan for his time and told him that they really wanted to speak to his wife. So they handed him their card and told him to tell Pam to give them a phone call so they can set up an interview with her as well. Pam Weingarten did call detectives and agreed to come in the following day to talk to them. But to their surprise, when Pam arrived, she had her husband with her. When they asked Pam to step into a room for questioning, Ryan demanded that he be present with his wife. It was clear that he would not back down, so they questioned her with him present. They asked Pam about her alibi for the night Gail and Rick had been murdered, and she said that she had been with Ryan the whole night, that they were out at his friend's house, but that they ended the night doing laundry together. Now, the detectives couldn't put their finger on it, but they knew that something was wrong with this couple's story. I mean, it's a little odd. I mean, how long are we talking about? I mean, you're doing laundry late at night. I mean, it's weird. After being at your friend's house, I could tell you right now, when we go to my friend's house, we don't come home and do laundry. This is coming from (laughs) the person that started laundry at 1230 in the morning last night. That's right. That was complete impulse. I have no idea what I was doing. Okay. And I was sober, too, so I don't know what's going on. So, I mean, laundry at midnight's a possibility. It's a possibility. But But strange. But strange. Yes. Yes. Because the detectives thought that Ryan and Pam were lying, they chose to look further into the couple. They questioned people who knew them during that time. And Ryan's siblings told them something that wasn't in any of the reports that the prior detectives had. There was a love triangle. Ryan was not just dating Pam at the time. Ryan was actually dating two girls. His other girlfriend um, went by the name of Chris Boleyn. And she still lived in town. So Ryan had been seeing Chris behind Pam's back. So Pam didn't really know about her. 
So detectives decided to ask Chris some questions about her relationship with Ryan during the time of the murders. Now, she really didn't have anything to say about the murders because during that time, she actually wasn't speaking to Ryan because they had gotten into a massive fight about him not breaking up with Pam. So the detectives were thanking Chris for her time, and just as they were about to leave, she told them to hold on. There was one more thing that she thought was weird, but she didn't know if it would help them. So at this point, the detectives are thinking, we'll we'll take anything because we're kind of at a loss here. So she explained that when she had been dating Ryan, he would always make really strange comments about his sister and how beautiful he thought she was. And once he had even shown her a picture of Gail in a bikini tanning, and he said to her, isn't she so hot? She's probably the hottest girl I know. And she just remembered thinking how weird that was, that it creeped her out, like it was totally disgusting. And when she didn't respond to what he was saying about the picture, he confided in her that he had been having a sexual relationship with Gail, his sister. Wow. Um... I'm at a loss. (laughs) Well, the detectives were just as floored as you are right now. So, of course, Ryan was brought in right away to talk about this sexual relationship that existed between him and his sister. Now, he is going to tell a totally different story to them that he had told his ex-girlfriend, Chris. Two detectives, he downplayed it all. Where he told Chris they had had sex all the time, starting at age 9 and 12, So when Gail was nine and he was 12 years old, he told detectives that they had played doctor once at nine and 12. And then in their early teens, they were smoking pot and had touched each other. And then something similar happened just before Gail had started dating Lars. So he is going to minimize it into three experiences where sex did not take place. Okay. So obviously we're going to cut in here and say in no way was the relationship that existed between Ryan and Gail consent a consensual sexual relationship. I was just about to say that. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. Ryan had, in reality, been molesting his younger sister since she was nine years old and he was 12. And this is something that had continued until she left to live with Lars. Now, if you think about things, everything totally makes sense and the signs had been there all along. Gail's whole life... Ryan had been overprotective and did not like it when any boy and eventually man was around her or showed her any attention, especially if that attention was sexual in any way. The reason Gail put up with Lars being an asshole, basically, and stayed with him was most likely because she wanted to get out of her house and away from her abusive brother. So far, that makes sense completely. So she moved back only to temporarily move in with Rick again afterwards, which is why her relationship with Rick probably moved as quickly as it did because she wanted to again get out of her house. Okay. Okay. Ryan was Gail's abuser. And when the detectives are going to tell Cheryl... Gail and Ryan's sister, she was obviously shocked, disgusted. And then for her too, she said it kind of made sense because the relationship between Ryan and Gail had always been unhealthy and he had always been a little too overprotective, a little too like domineering when it came to Gail. And, you know, then she began to feel horrible about what had been happening to her sister because the family was blind to it. But I mean... It's, it's a hard thing to deal with, incestual sexual abuse. 
but it's something that happens a lot and doesn't get spoken about a lot because families like keeping that a secret. Right, of course. And now look, you're shedding light on it because you literally raised money to find the what's truth. going on, and that's what you find out. I mean, that's I mean, that's it's pretty horrible, actually. It's shocking. Yeah. I mean, that's like the last thing that you think would come of the reopening of the investigation into your sister's murder, that she had been abused since she was nine years old. So for 10 years at the hands of your younger brother. That's crazy. That's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For the whole family. Okay, guys, we're going to take a quick break right here to hear from our final sponsor of the show, BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? In my experience, my conversations with a therapist have helped me get past interferences that I didn't even know were present in my life. And once I could confront them and let them go, my life changed for the better. Well, now there's a way for you to do the same on your own time. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as you do with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Here is an example of a recent review from July 18th. My therapist has been very attentive to me since we began and has been very patient, kind, and flexible with me. She is open-minded and has been very helpful in teaching me coping mechanisms and working through past trauma. She's also very good about keeping her appointments. So you can visit BetterHelp today. Go to BetterHelp.com TCC. That's BetterHelp. And join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And BetterHelp has a special offer for true crime couple listeners. You'll get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash true crime couple. That's 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash true crime couple. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. So the detectives believed that when Gail married Rick, things were different than in her relationship with Lars. So when Gail was in a relationship with Lars, that was an abusive relationship and it wasn't good. So there is a possibility that, I mean, and, and you have to understand that when we talk about sexual abuse, incestual sexual abuse is a lot, it's a different animal than just sexual abuse because that person is a, is a relative that the victim may seek comfort in because they are a relative, but then that sexual abuse also takes place as well. So 
in Gail's relationship being bad with Lars, the sexual abuse might have been con- continued with Ryan. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. But with Rick, things were different. Rick and Gail had a solid relationship that was really working out. She had finally found someone who was there to love her unconditionally, which I think would give her the confidence to break off that relationship with Ryan. Right. No, I I see what you're saying. So did Ryan think that Gail was going to be honest and tell her husband what had happened to her? Or maybe she already had. Or maybe Ryan was jealous of this new life that Gail was living. Whereas he was only just getting by, she was living this like kind of extravagant lifestyle that, you know, their family had not been accustomed to. There's a lot of factors here. But the one thing that remains the truth is that this is a secret that could have ruined everyone's life. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's traumatizing for an entire family, including the victim involved, you know. Yeah, I I have to say that there is no way that something like this could take place and it and it doesn't if this were to come out, it would polarize the family. 100%. And I think that this is a it's actually something that is a little bit more common than people think takes place. So the reason why it's not brought to a forefront is because like I said before, families keep this a secret because they want to keep it in, but that just isolates the victim even further so i can only imagine gail's feelings throughout this whole time right because she had never been able to tell anyone when there is sexual abuse a lot of times victims don't come forward in fear of not being believed but now could you imagine trying to go and tell your mother and father not only am i being sexually abused but your son is doing this to me his own sister right so that is just it's horrible yeah i mean it adds another layer of complication complication yeah 100 percent. so i'm sure that the wine garden family hearing this news in 2012 was in a state of shock from the interviews that cheryl has given it is clear that the family has been clearly divided some believe it and some do not which is only normal right i mean it's gonna happen yeah but but sad but it's so oh, sad. totally sad but it's gonna happen i mean yes it's that's true But this was huge for the investigation. The detectives felt like they had a viable suspect with a motive, and they needed to get him. And they think they had found the right way to do so. It had clearly struck a chord when they asked to speak with Pam because he wanted to be there, like he needed to be in the room. So they chose to do that again. Like they're thinking Pam is the weak spot here. We got to work on her. So they asked Pam to come in and speak with them again the next day. She agreed again. And Ryan showed up with her. This time, though, they insisted that the interview took place without him present. And he's going to back down and kind of like let it happen this time. Pamela Weingarten was a quiet, meek woman. She was nervous and polite with investigators. And she answered their questions honestly this time. Maybe. When they pressed Pam about why she had kept up with the lie about the alibi and how she could live with the fact that Ryan had sexually abused his younger sister, she kind of broke down. And she admitted to them that she lied about the alibi about the night of the murders. She said that in 1987, she knew that Ryan was a drug dealer and that he had told her that he was out dealing drugs the night of the murder, so he asked her to cover up for him. And she did because she loved him. She also admitted that in the last interview... She had lied again when she said they were doing laundry and things like that. 
So at this point, the detectives feel like they have enough information to make Ryan kind of like a legal suspect here. And that gives them the right to interrogate him. And the detectives pulled Ryan into a separate room and they asked him about his sexual relationship again with Gail. Again, he explained it as them just being kids and messing around. It's clearly downplaying this. Yeah. He said that there had never been any actual physical sexual relationship. He denied any involvement in the murder. And at this point, detectives unfortunately had nothing to hold him on, but they wanted to rattle him. And they definitely did that. Because over the next couple of days, while the detectives were continuing their investigation, they had a lot going on here. They knew that not only was Gail the victim of incestual sexual abuse, but Pam was seemingly the victim of abuse herself. So they wanted to get the opinion of psychologists before they move forward in any type of way with this case. So while they were kind of getting versed in this world of sexual abuse, they received 32 phone calls from Ryan Weingarten in a 48-hour time period. See, that's bizarre. See, so now he's starting to sweat now because he he knows that they're on to him now. Oh, 100%. So on the occasion that he got their voicemail, he left very bizarre phone messages. The detectives have gone on record stating that he was a loose cannon. But obviously he was acting like a crazy cornered animal, basically. And in the messages, he goes on and on about how he hates the police, but they're a necessary evil because they're digging into his family's dirt. But he loves them because they're going to find his sister's killer. Yeah. And it's just really weird. The whole thing is very strange. And it seems like he's losing his mind in these voicemail messages. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's what it seems like for sure. So again, the detectives believe that the best way to get to Ryan would be to go through Pam. So again, they bring her in for questioning. Ryan showed up with his wife yet again. And he told investigators that in no way would she be questioned alone. But since their last meeting, detectives had talked to quite a few psychologists, and they knew that Pam was being emotionally controlled and abused by her husband. So they knew that he couldn't be present during questioning. So they insisted on a solo interview, but the couple declined. Well, more like Ryan did, but Pam went along with what he was saying. So they told them to just go home. They didn't want to speak to them. Okay. So they honor the wishes of the couple at the station. However, the next day they pay Pam a visit at her job site where they knew she would be alone. They tell her that no matter what she and her husband do, they will not be leaving them alone anytime soon. And that it's in her best interest as well as her children and grandchildren if she talked to them. She agreed. Pamela Weingarten chose in that moment to unload 25 years of regret, fear, and anger. She finally told the truth. Ryan came to her apartment the night of the murder and told her that he had shot Gail and Rick, and he did it because he couldn't stand them. They thought they were better than me. They're too good for us now. Basically, like they thought who they were, so he shot them in the head. The detectives know this is a sensitive situation. Although they were happy about getting a confession from someone, they knew that they needed to keep Pam safe. She had spent 25 years with a man that she had known was a killer, had children with him. This was a case of coercive control, and it was also a dangerous one. They knew what Ryan was capable of, so they needed to get her out of this situation immediately. 
They call the prosecutor and ask for immunity and a safe place for Pam to be until the arrest took place. So basically now they're going to take Pam to the Ottawa Sheriff's Department and have her give a formal statement so she could be at the Sheriff's Department while he's getting arrested so she'll never be in any physical danger. I mean, that's good. Good protocols, you know? Yes, very much. So she explained how through intimidation and mental and verbal abuse, Ryan got her to stay with him. She sobbed through the whole interview as she recalled on how Sunday, the day after the murder, Ryan forced her to go with him to Gail and Rick's house to show her what had taken place. She had to take her 18-month-old child with her because she couldn't leave them at home. So they drove to the murder scene where Ryan showed her the body of Rick Brink in the Chevy Blazer in the driveway. And then he brought her inside and forced her to lift the pillow from the bed. And that is when she saw Gail. She said she was in hysterics the entire time. And he said, she's not so pretty now, is she? This guy is like super twisted. Yes. It's unbelievable. He threatened that if she ever told anyone that he did this, the same thing would happen to her and her child. And you know what? Would you go against him after seeing that? No, and that's why he took her there. Exactly. That was all planned. Like that part is planned for sure. Because now he knows that she'll never disobey him. Right. It's disgusting. Then she said, one day, years later, she had asked him why he had killed them. What started it? And he told her that he had gone over to his sister's house. She had clearly been drunk. And they got into, obviously, from the wedding. She had gotten into a heated argument with him about something that he only described as a family matter. And he stormed out of the house. Hours later, he returned claiming that he had car trouble. Rick said that he would drive him home and told Gail to stay in bed. As Rick got into his blazer, Ryan Weingarten shot him, and then he went inside to shoot his sleeping sister. Okay, so now that explains why they were separated. Yes. He went out to help. To drive his brother-in-law home. During her entire interview, Ryan was calling Pam's phone nonstop. When they asked... If that was normal, she said yes. Since they have been investigating him, she needed to call him when she was on her lunch break and on her way home. And she had not called him that day, so he must be growing suspicious. After Pam wrote and signed her statement, they went to arrest Ryan Weingarten for the murder of his sister and brother-in-law. It was January of 2013. Ryan denied his involvement and argued that Pam was lying and just angry that the truth came out about his sexual relationship with his sister. Right, buddy. She's jealous. So weird, man. It's unbelievable. So the trial began on March 11, 2014. The case caught national media attention. It was a horrible murder with a sickening motive. And just like Weingarten was the loose cannon making those 32 phone calls. He was the same way throughout his trial. The trial went into the details of the case, the sexual abuse of Gail, and then the prosecution's star witness took the stand, Pamela Weingarten. Everyone in court held their breath as the battered woman of 26 abusive years of marriage took the stand against her husband. As she explained that she covered for Ryan's alibi in 1987, And about how he took her to the murder site and threatened her. And about how he abused her for decades. She seemed to get stronger as her story went on. 
She did cry, but it was like watching a transformation take place on the stand. And everyone was captivated. And they admired Pam for doing that. By the end of her testimony, no one doubted the story that she told. And not because of her vulnerability or her bravery, but because of the behavior of her husband. Throughout Pam's testimony, her husband continued to interrupt her, yelling that she's a black-hearted liar and that he couldn't believe that she was telling these lies about him and that no one should believe her. It was his behavior, not her story, that sealed his fate. After the testimony of Pam, 60 other witnesses took the stand, one of which was a cellmate of Weingarten's. He said that the man had confessed to the murders to him as well. So he told his cellmate this, too. He also said that if he knew his sister Cheryl would have been so much of a problem, he would have. And then he motioned strangling someone with his hands. Unbelievable. Guy's a monster, really. He is. And at that point, the whole courtroom turned to look at Cheryl, who was at that point not shocked by anything. I mean, how could she be? Right. After finding all this out, like, how could you be shocked? No, no, you can't. So the verdict came back quite quickly, and Ryan Weingarten was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. Three weeks later at his sentencing, Weingarten got into further trouble when he continually interrupted the judge who was trying to sentence him. He was basically proclaiming his innocence, and he would not let the judge speak. Finally, the judge said to him that he was going to hear what he had to say, even if he had to hogtie him and duct tape him to the chair. No nonsense. (laughs) Um, The judge told him that he committed a brutal homicide and he was a brutal, cold-blooded murderer. He sentenced Weingarten to two life sentences without the possibility of parole. And he has lost every appeal since his sentencing. We still don't know exactly what the motive was. Was it just jealousy of their life? Was it the fact that his sister moved on? Or was it the fear of everyone knowing the truth? You know, that's funny, right? Because like what you just said, I believe it's a little bit of everything. I think right? so, too. Because I think that he was jealous, extremely. I mean, I think also, I think the the motive was, if we're talking about that night specifically, right? Well, you can make the argument that he went over there, Gail was intoxicated, he tr- maybe tried to make a move on her. And she rejected and him. And she rejected him, and then he got bitter about it. Yeah, that's and what then I think. Came back and and made this, and then in that moment made an elaborate plot to kill both of them. And then he came to back show, and did oh, it, like you know, to show her, like you don't reject me, right? So I think it's, I think it's a little bit of everything. I think the guy's super twisted, and I'm glad the guy's locked up. I mean, you know, I mean, you're a disgrace. You're a disgrace because you killed people. You're a disgrace to your family. I mean, like, yeah, to me, he's I mean, the that, worst it gets. He really is. Because what's the role? Of an older brother. The role of an older brother is to protect, to protect your siblings, to, you know. Especially your younger sister. Exactly. And you, you're supposed to protect them from monsters, not be the monster yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And I, there must just be something wrong with this guy because uh, yeah. it's not, well, it's, it's not clear, the way it's supposed to be. It's clear yeah. that he's unstable with his like outbursts and he can't control himself. Yeah. So, and it's sad to think that Gail and Rick's lives were taken so early when they both finally found happiness. Cheryl stated that she knew her sister and brother-in-law would have been amazing parents. So it's just a shame that they never got the chance to to do that. Yeah. 
So it is sad that their their lives were taken because someone is an animal, basically. Yeah. Um, it's just sad that it was a family member. Yeah, I mean that even makes like I said, and it's, he lives with himself, no problem. Yeah, like it was no big deal. And um, just as a side note, like I said before, the Polinsky and Wilson cases still remain open, and it's even you know more clear now that there is no connection between the three cases right and i I was gonna say and what was the development on that and that's actually weird too because then technically there was somebody doing something else on top of that happening so well they do think the polinsky case it was a female suspect the wilson case they're still completely you know so maybe there isn't a lot going on in that town during that time uh, you know and, well i should say before that and then all of a sudden things ramped up yes um it's possible that happens in any town any Especially city in the united states you will see a rise in murder rates when you're in an economically um impoverished area which michigan unfortunately was in the late 1980s and still is a little bit you know yeah unfortunately it's a stressor people losing their jobs or you never know well, when you don't have, when you don't know where you're getting your next meal from, that makes some people do some crazy things. Right? That's very true. Right? I mean, I couldn't imagine. Being now, that, I'm not that saying way. that that necessarily was the motives for these cases. No, no. But it, that's just the correlation sometimes yeah. that statistically you see. That was a crazy one. Crazy one. Yes. We want to take the time now to thank our Patreon subscribers for everything they do. Guys, this whole podcast would not be possible without you. And we want to thank you not only for your donations we want to thank you for all the support and love that you show us we really appreciate it and we want to welcome you to the community yeah and you know guys i know especially me i sound like a broken record all the time but it is true though without you none of this would be possible and if you aren't on patreon even those people are also the driving force of our show even if you don't donate to us you're still extremely appreciated we love you we do this for you and we, you know, we love what we do here. So, you know, we just, you know, we want to just thank all of you. Right. So our new Patreon people that we want to thank, that's Sarah, Chelsea Williams, Brianna Boyer changed her pledge from $1 to $5. Thank you so much. Thank you. As Susan upped her pledge from 5 to 10 Yay, Susan. And then Courtney Mays came in strong with a $20 pledge. Wow, Courtney, thank you. Allison Stanley, Lindy, Amy Davis... Bo Freeman, Aaron Taylor, Kay Myers, Gwen Moliscon, Tanya, Ginger Corneo, Catherine edited her pledge from $1 to $5, and Danielle Drollinger is donating $15 a month. Wow, thank you so much. That's your that's your thing that you always say? Wow, thank you so much. It is. I lost my broken record yeah. thing. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, because that's like... Thank you, Danielle. Yeah, thank you. you know? <laughs> I know. Uh, Maddie... Allison Adams, Vivian Garakana, Karen Washington, Kathy Gerhard, Kristen Minnis, Corley, Emily Farrell up to her pledge from two to five, Trinity Walsh, Jody T, Anthony, Michelle English, Lauren Laforte, Daniel Coyle, Julia DiStefano, Keza Bow, and Corinne P. Thanks, guys, so much, and we can't wait to bring you the Israel Keys episode next weekend. Can't wait. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.